Welcome everyone to another episode of the Hermeneutics 101 podcast. I'm recording this on Thursday, March the 14th, 2019 at 10.23 a.m. Central Time. Now for this episode, I want to go back, well, to yesterday. Yesterday evening at Victory Baptist Church. Now, I had an entire sermon planned. I had everything ready to go, and as I was driving to church, something happened. And as a result of what happened, I walked in to Victory Baptist Church, walked up to the pulpit, and my entire sermon, well, was thrown out. And what happened was, well, the sermon for Wednesday night basically became a hermeneutical lesson, a lesson about hermeneutics. It became about how hermeneutics coming from the pulpit at times can be very misleading and dangerous because I listened to a sermon on the way to church and something I heard in that sermon, well, led to what occurred Wednesday night. And I want you to hear what happened on Wednesday night, but let me make this very clear. This is very important for you to understand, and this is why I'm recording this introduction. When you listen, you have to understand what is happening. This is an impromptu hermeneutical lesson. This is an impromptu, basically, class on hermeneutics. And I'm responding to something I just heard. So you're going to hear things not being presented in a clearly organized way. You're going to hear like, okay, wait, where's this? Can, can we look this up? And I'm getting the church. They are participating. I'm, they're, they're looking up verses. I'm asking for cross-references. And so there's some times where there's some pauses. Things are not quite organized. Uh, I don't really have, obviously, I don't have a planned outline. So I'm trying trying to kind of offer points right there. I mean, I, basically you're hearing the whole thing happening in real time. I think there's some value in that because I, it shows the liberty and the freedom I have at my church to be able to show up and, and throw out the planned message and basically create a message on the spot about something that is relevant and about something is important. Because Christians go to churches, Christians listen to sermons, and sometimes what you hear preached there's basically a hermeneutical lesson in those sermons. You may not realize it, but they're, they're teaching you how to handle the scriptures. They're teaching you how the scriptures should be understood and interpreted. Even if that's not the, the point of their message, that is still being conveyed. And many people listening to sermons or sitting in the pew, they just pick up these you know, methods of hermeneutics without even realizing what is occurring. So I want you to listen. Now, because I'm in front of my church, I do feel I have a lot of liberty, so I can say things in a very blunt way. They understand it. I can I can say things and they 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 kind of get what I'm saying. Now sometimes when that those messages are then played or are shared via the internet and a podcast, there's there's people who aren't really familiar with that situation and they may misinterpret what is said. If you're confused by anything I say or are bothered by something, please contact me so that I can explain or clarify. But what you're hearing is me reacting to a sermon that I heard, something that was said that to me clearly demonstrated a mishandling of the text, 
and then we begin to tear it apart. What you will notice in this sermon is that I do not, I do not mention the name of the pastor or the program because it's not about attacking this pastor or attacking this radio program. It's about hermeneutics. It's about when you listen to sermons, you've got to learn to detect, wait a minute, that's that method of hermeneutics is not, that's not a good way to handle the text. And hopefully this will be helpful. Now you've got to be prepared for a long sermon. This is like one hour and 17 minutes long. So feel free to listen for 20 minutes, stop, go do something else, come back the next day, listen to the next 20 minutes, break it up into sections, uh, whatever you need to do. But you're going to want a notebook, you're going to want um, uh, something to write with, you're going to want a Bible, and you're going to want to listen carefully, and, and, and hopefully, hopefully, this will be beneficial. This is one of those times where I'm not sure I should post this, but I'm going to because I do think that I raise enough interesting points about hermeneutics, methods of interpretation, that there's plenty here to benefit people who care about learning about hermeneutics and Bible study and how to interpret the Bible. I think there's plenty here to chew on. You're not going to possibly agree with everything, and you may not like my delivery, but I, my delivery is where I am delivering it in a way that I'm standing in front of, of friends. I'm standing in front of people who I feel I can be blunt and direct and honest with, where if I was speaking to it in a different uh, group, I probably would not have that freedom. So hopefully you will understand that. You will show grace because again, this is impromptu. So not every T is going to be crossed. Not every I is going to be dotted, but I still think you can benefit greatly from it. But I'm going to stop now because I'm getting ready to preach my host sermon again. And well, you've got an entire sermon coming up. So let's go to the sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church last night at 7 p.m. Central Time. That's when our Wednesday evening service takes place. And well, there's uh, some people there with open Bibles and notebooks, and we dig in for an hour and 17 minutes in what really became a, her a class on hermeneutics. A, a, it's basically a class where I'm not just having the people learn about hermeneutics, I'm trying to have them engaged and doing hermeneutics with me to try to determine the best way to interpret two passages from the book of Exodus. Join us, learn, Hopefully, you'll find it beneficial. So here we go. This was me last night standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church located in Ovalo, Texas. Enjoy. All right. Tonight, we're going to completely change my an entire plan. All because I listened to Christian radio on the way here. All right. It's all, I don't know why I do that. It's dangerous to my health that's dangerous to uh, anyone on the road near me. Um, but on the way here, uh, a pastor, I don't know what the, the ultimate point of the sermon was because when I got into the car, obviously the program starts at 6.30. I got in the car around 6.40, so I missed the first 10 minutes. Um, but in the sermon, he makes a reference to Moses. And it seems that most of the application, he was doing obviously far more application than he was exegeting, or, and that's probably where the, where the problems went, started, um, because you can't do application until you've done, we all, we all know the steps, right? Step number one is called what? Observation. Everybody in this church knows that. It's observation, right? That's step number one is observation. Observation has two parts. What are the two parts of observation? 
macro and my, micro, right? And that's the idea of looking at the whole and looking at a small part. All right, so you have to do interpretation. Another name for interpretation, we would call that Bible study because the goal, of, or I'm sorry, I just said interpretation. Observation, macro and micro, the, whatever we're, whether we're uh, observing the whole or we're observing a small part, we call that Bible study because Bible study is observation. Bible study is not interpretation. Bible study is observation. This is where everyone, pastors make this mistake and probably 90% of church members when they're like, well, I'm going to study the Bible and they think that that means finding an interpretation. No, Bible study involves observation, right? Now, after you've done observation, then you can go to interpretation and that is called hermeneutics. Bible study is observation. Hermeneutics is interpretation, which is the art and science of interpretation. After you've done your, and the quality of your interpretation is based off the quality of your observation, right? If you have bad observation, you have bad interpretation. After you have done observation and interpretation, then and only then do you get to do what? Application. Many sermons is far more con, uh, focused on application than they are on observation or interpretation. They jump to application. All right, I say all of that. I know everyone here knows this, but this is probably going to show up in the hermeneutics section of the church app, and there's plenty of people there who, don't, who are listening who don't know probably those principles. So uh, I'll, I'll stress them for, for their sake. But as I was driving here, okay, I already had a sermon ready to go. Already prepared. We were going to do with some hermeneutical issues, right? From uh, based off this book, okay. We were gonna we were gonna dig in. But as I was driving, all of a sudden, this pastor he's preaching about Moses, and I'm like, okay, okay. And immediately I realize that I mean, I get into the car at 6:40, so the radio program's only been on for 10 minutes. Now I know sometimes it's a continuation of the previous day. So maybe somewhere in this sermon, maybe two days ago or a day ago, he did a lot of observation. He did a lot of exegesis, but based on what he did with the uh, application, I would argue clearly he didn't. Okay, so he's going to application. He's trying to apply what happened to Moses, obviously, to us. Okay, he makes at least one good observation or application, and I'm like, or I should say observation, one good application, and I'm like, okay, that's really good. So I'm, I'm driving along, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to actually make it to church, okay? And, and, and then it happened. And then it happened. And I immediately, I started reaching for my Bible. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to open up the Bible as I'm driving. The car's going all over the road. I'm yelling at the radio. I'm screaming. I'm, my blood pressure's getting up. And, I, and I, I've kind of reached this conclusion. If you want to fit in in the Christian world, you cannot be a student of the Bible. Because Bible students aren't allowed. Because so much of what you hear within the Christian world, a Bible student will, re will reject, and in fact it will bother them because they're not being even halfway close, closely faithful to God's word. But here is what this pastor did. Now let me, before I get, to what, he, before what I get to what he did, let me explain a very important principle. Some people learn enough what they perceive to be Bible study skills, that they actually make themselves 
more dangerous than when they were when they didn't know any Bible study skills. Let me give you an example. Because if the same Hebrew word or if the same Greek word appears in two separate verses, does that immediately mean that they are connected? All right, I want everyone to say that out loud. Just because you find the same Hebrew word in Exodus 2, and you find the exact same Hebrew word in Numbers chapter 20, does that mean the two things are related? No, the same Hebrew word doesn't show connection. It just shows they use the same Hebrew word. It doesn't mean that they're connected in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't even mean you should use it as a cross-reference. It just means it uses the same word. Correct? When you talk, right, Diane could be over here talking to Miss Gussler. I could be over here talking to Bobby, right? We both use the same English word. <laughs> Does it mean the two conversations have correlation? No, they do not. Now, could we possibly be talking about the same thing? Maybe, but just because we use the same word is irrelevant. So this pastor tries, and I, 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 I can't even believe, and what drives me so crazy, he does this in the sermon, and then about two minutes later, he's getting a, a, an applause in the church. Everybody in the church. I'm like, well, nobody applauds for me, and I would not make this hermeneutical error, okay? I'm like, I'm going to demand applause for now on. But it's crazy, because even Christians don't catch it. So here's what he does. He takes something going on in Numbers 20. He says the same Hebrew word is used in Exodus. Therefore, he tries to draw a correlation between the two. So we're going to look at it and then see what we can find. Now, my, here's the thing. If there's correlation, if there's correlation, and let me stress this. If there's correlation, it has to be based off the topic and what's being said, not just the, the, the presence of the same Hebrew word. Does that make sense? In other words, it requires more. Now, maybe what this pastor was trying to say, oh, there's, there's an interesting connection here, but his basis for trying to draw the connection was the presence of the same Hebrew word. That is where I, I think this went up. Now, of course, uh, he didn't spend enough time with the the, the point to really dig in, which again, but he still gets the round of applause, so he did something right. Obviously, there was a lot of people there, so maybe if you just have bad hermeneutics, you can have lots of people show up to church. Okay, maybe that's what I need to do. I'll just start having bad hermeneutics. Okay, here we go. Let's go to Exodus. Let's pick up this story, and I'm going to do my best to try to look at it from a hermeneutical perspective, but we'll also try to get something practical from it. Does that make sense? All right, here we go. Now, this is always dangerous because obviously... This is impromptu, right? Okay, so we'll see how well I can pull this off, right? I mean, we know I don't need a lot of time to prepare to be able to talk for an hour, okay? That's, that's never been my problem, okay? All right, Exodus chapter 2, all right? And um, I, I told everyone to look up where the, uh, the incident occurs. In was it Exodus chapter 2? Okay, verse 12. All right, so we'll start. Where do we want to start uh, this story? 
Um, yeah, Exodus 2. We'll go to verse 11. That, that'll give us the, the, the story, the context. All right, everybody there? Exodus chapter 2. We know, the, obviously, we know everything that's kind of, we know the setting here. Uh, Israel's found themselves in Egypt. You know, a, a new pharaoh who's come along, doesn't remember. Um, they kind of find themselves in bondage. We have everything that's taking place, right? Um, we have Mo Moses has ended up where? Pharaoh's house, okay? Remember, we got all the basic uh, context, okay? Um, and we can see in verse 10, And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter. And, uh, and remember, she worked it out where she got a chance to nurse the child and all of that, right? And uh, he became her son, and she called him Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. Remember, they were gonna, there was an order to kill the babies and all the different things that occurred. All right. Verse 11. And it came to pass in those days that when Moses was grown, and he went out unto his brethren, and he looked on their burden, he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew one of his brethren. Right? So he watches what, what is taking place. An Egyptian is doing what? Smiting. Smiting. Oh, another way of saying it? Hitting. Hitting. Striking. Alright. Everybody got that? Then verse 12. Moses does what? He looked this way. He looked that way. Now why is he looking this way and looking that way? Yeah, he's making sure no one's looking. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Oh, now this is even more interesting because now I think the pastor may be completely out of his mind. All right, what? Do you have the NIV, uh, Stephen? Okay, maybe this man was using the NIV. Verse 12. Read verse 12 for me in the NIV. Let me get close where people listening online will be able to pick it up on the microphone. All right, verse 12. Killed the Egyptian. Okay, all right. All right. And the previous verse. Okay, okay. Then, I, then that's then. Then I see what he's getting ready to do here. Okay, but it says he slew him. All right. Now, um, Bobby, I'm glad you picked uh, picked that up. Just to make sure that we are on the same page, and we'll need this when we get to Numbers 20. Um, the word "slew" in Exodus 2:12 is the same Hebrew word as smiting. In verse 11. So in other words, you could translate verse 12 that Moses smited the Egyptian, smote the Egyptian, struck the Egyptian. You get the idea? Now obviously we know he killed him, right? That's the idea. But just please note, it is the same Hebrew word as smite, smiting in verse 11. Just keep that in mind. Right? Same Hebrew word. Is that 100% accurate? I don't have it in front of me. It is the same. same. Okay, we got confirmation? All right. Okay, all right. So we got the same Hebrew word. Just, we want to make sure we're, we are accurate, right? We want to make sure we are accurate. Okay, now, the, everyone gets the story there, all right? As a result, ultimately Moses has to flee, right? He has to flee, and he takes off, and he backs out of the desert, right? Okay. Right. He's, he spends his time there. All right. Later in his life, we know what happens. God raises him. You know, God calls him from the burning bush. He is sent back. He is used by God as his 
divine messenger to ultimately not only to deliver a message, but to lead the people out of, out of Egypt, out of bondage. All right. Then he ends up with uh, all the people of Israel, and they tend to be what? A little bit rebellious. <laughs> don't really listen. They do a lot of whining and complaining, don't they? They do a lot of whining and complaining, which brings us to Numbers chapter 20. All right, everybody there? All right, we'll start in verse 1. We'll work through the whole text, and then we'll get to the, the key verse, and I'll sh explain what this pastor does, and then we'll see if there's any, why he drew a connection between the two. But you already know where this is going. He obviously takes that story I just read, and he's going to connect it to the story we are about to read. Why does he connect it? He connects it because of a Hebrew word. How, how, why is this occurring, right? I mean, these are completely different stories, are they not? Is there a correlation? We'll see. Let's go. Uh, Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin, and the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. All right, once again, something doesn't go their way. And I know it is a serious thing not to have water. I understand that. I'm not going to pretend that it isn't. It's a serious thing, but once again, things don't go their way. And what happens? They are going to be upset. Verse 3. And the people chode uh, or chided with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into the wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? Now, verse 4 is very important from a practical standpoint because the people are blaming whom? Moses. They tend to forget who is doing the leading. God. But they're blaming Moses, because when we want to blame, when we're unhappy, we want a target to place our unhappiness upon, right? When we're not happy, when we're not content, when we're frustrated, we want someone that we can point to and go, they're the reason. Well, it's hard to point to an invisible God. It's easy to point to a man. You're the reason, right? So that's what they do. All right, now there's a lot of lessons we could get from that, but we want to get to this hermeneutical issue that we're approaching. Everybody got that? That brings us to verse 5. Yes? Okay. And wherefore, have you made us to come up out of Egypt? Remember, again, you made us come up out of Egypt. Like, we didn't want to leave Egypt. We were more than happy in slavery, but you made us leave. Again, this is, this is how irrational people can be. When we get mad and we get frustrated, we can become so irrational that we're not even able to perceive the reality of a situation, all right? To bring us out of Egypt, to bring us unto this evil place. It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines, um, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They fell upon their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. It seems that they're, they're, they don't even know what to say. They're like, okay, these people are all mad. Let's just go talk to, to the Lord. So they go before the Lord. And the Lord appeared 
or the Lord spoke and said unto Moses, doesn't appear, the Lord spoke and, and, and unto Moses saying, take the rod, gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beast drink. All right. Now, his instructions are very clear. What is he supposed to do? Speak to the rock. Bring everyone together, speak to the rock, and they're going to get water. Okay. Seems pretty clear, does it not? All right, but you have to, we can probably assume... Right? I think we can at least, we, now we've got to assume this. The text may clear, clarify this in a moment. But at this point, as a reader, you can probably assume Moses is probably a little irritated with these people. I think it's fairly t fair to say. Now, it's easy for us to blame those people, but we've all find, found ourselves wanting to blame someone for our circumstances and not deal with our own spiritual issues. All right? We've all done that. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. All right, so he's, he's obeying, right? Is he obeying? He's, he's getting up and he's going. He's, he's doing what he's supposed to do, all right? And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation uh, together before the rock. And he said unto them. Now, here is a difficult thing, all right? What he's about to speak is he saying something that he should say? Is he saying something he's allowed to say? Is he saying something he's commanded to say? We could get into a big lengthy discussion here, right? We have no record of God telling him to say what he's about to say. In fact, he's supposed to just simply speak to rock. So, does that make Moses wrong? We don't know. We don't know. I mean, you see how preachers could get into this. Like, this, this is where preachers get involved, right? Because that's a good sermon right here, right? Like, hey. Yeah, right. But, I mean, he, uh, he already gathered the congregation together. Once they're there, now he's going to speak to them. Once he speaks to them, now at that point, does he enter into to being wrong? Or is he, does he have the freedom to do this? Is it right to do this? Everyone, this is where you could get into a thousand different uh, interpretations. And pastors love this kind of thing. Because, like you could say, hey, this is what happens when you get mad. You say things you're not supposed to say. Or you could say, you know what? The, the people needed to be confronted. This was right. The problem is, is what he does next. You could, get, you, could, you could preach this a number of different ways. That's always the problem. Once the preacher preaches it, now you're going to interpret it the next time you read the story. Right? If I preach this, that Moses' words demonstrate his wrong attitude, and that these words are an indication that Moses is doing, about to do something wrong, then the next time you read it, you're going to basically read it as Moses is wrong to say these words. That's the pastor offering an interpretation. Does the, t the text doesn't say anything about what he says here. It's going, to, it's going to focus on what he does. But let's focus on what he says here and see what we can get from this, all right? And see if there's any, anything we can take from this. So he gathers all the people together. What verse are we on? Yeah, verse 10. Okay, yeah, here we go. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Now that's somewhat questionable. 
right? Because God told him that he's getting ready to fetch water out of this rock. And he's almost irritated that he even has to do it. Like He almost is like, you know what, if it's up to me, you wouldn't get any water and you'd all die of thirst. Okay? Like he, He's almost irritated that he even has to do this. So that could be an indication that maybe Moses should not be saying this because he was just told by God to go fetch water from the rock. Agreed? Right? I, think we can, I think we can reasonably uh, apply that. Based off observing the story, I think that is a fair interpretation that could lead to an application. Right? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod, and with his rod, not his rot, with his rod, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, and with his rod, he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. Stop right there. This pastor does this. You see the word smote there? He says that's the same Hebrew word. The same Hebrew word of when Moses struck the Egyptian. Is it the same Hebrew word? It is the same Hebrew word. So uh, I will give this pastor credit and he deserves credit because if you don't believe if you don't believe me you go listen to sermons or like you know like Christians should listen to a lot of sermons and you'll find how many times pastors say a word means something in the Hebrew and the Greek and it actually doesn't now I think pastors have gotten a little bit better in 2019 with not doing that and the reason why is because they know everyone in the congregation <laughs> well I get, we may be the only, only congregation where everyone is looking up the Hebrew and the Greek. I think some congregations, people don't even know how to do it. But everyone here is usually looking it up. Okay? But I think most pastors should be aware now that, hey, people can look that up. So I better make sure I have my information correct. Right? So it is the same Hebrew word. Does that mean anything? Do what? And he hit the Egyptian. They didn't have guns, right? Okay, so his options of killing someone is either to strike them or to stab them, right? That's, that's his only two options, right? So is there a connection? He's going to try. He basically implies this. The reason, that, and, and this is very dangerous the way he said this, and we're, we're going to continue to read and see Maybe he's right, but he, I'm going to go ahead and make the, uh, what he said here, and then we'll test it, and, and then we'll, we'll be decisive. First, he says, he draws a connection between this and there because the same Hebrew word is used. Is there a connection? Well, I mean, he struck two different things, right? Okay. I, I don't know if there's a correlation. Now, you could say, you could say, this demonstrates that Moses has an anger problem. Now, is that fair? Because in the first time when he killed someone, he seemed pretty calm, right? Seemed very calculated, right? There's no one looking. Now, was he mad or was he felt, felt, felt like he was rendering justice in defense of, of someone who was helpless, but he was doing it in a wrong way? In this particular situation, he doesn't care who's looking. 
Right? He doesn't care. This seems to be more passionate and rage, and the other one seems to be more calculated. So should we draw a correlation? I don't know. Does, he, does the same Hebrew word apply? Does the same Hebrew word use? But that doesn't mean anything because he's doing, it's the same Hebrew word is used because he's used, doing a common action that that word describes. He's striking something. Correct? And you could say that in, in, um, in the case of striking the Egyptian, number one, he hadn't been told by God not to do it. And number two, um, I guess you could say he's, been, he's violated the law that God said in Genesis that if you kill someone, you're to be killed. But obviously, he, nothing happens to, to him. Okay, but all right. But you see the danger there. And I just want to make sure you understand that because this, people do this all the time. Christians will get into some kind of doctrinal or textual argument and go, well, the same Greek word is used over here. The same Greek word is used over here. And you're like, what difference does that make? You've got to show me a connection beyond using the same word. Does everybody understand that? So that's the first thing he, he, he tries to draw a correlation because the same Hebrew word is used. Everybody got that? All right. Second thing he does. He implies... The reason Moses cannot go into the promised land is because, one, he killed the Egyptian, and two, he struck the rock. That's... Well, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, we're, we're going to read this and see what actually takes place. That's, that's a big statement, right? Because what you're saying is like, okay, because he killed the Egyptian, he was good enough for God to use to do all the things that he does, but he was never going to go into the promised land. He was never going to enter into the promised land. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't it seem that there's some verses before that there, there seems to be a promise? that Moses would go into the promised land? Doesn't it seem like, wait a minute. Uh, I'm now, now, of course, the pastor didn't take the time to, to carry this out, but I, I'm, I'm like, I'm almost wrecking the car. Like, wait a minute, what are you saying? What are you, what? Like, just because they use the same Hebrew word doesn't mean it's the, that it's the same sin. Like, he's almost trying to draw a correlation between the sins. Like, it's basically the same sin. He's committing the same sin. He's striking something he's not supposed to strike. It's the same sin. I'm having a hard time here. But let's, let's see what the text says, right? That's, that would have been great if that pastor would have looked at what the text said, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that have been awesome, right? That, that would have been great. But, you know, hey, it's 2019. We don't want, uh, congregations don't want the pastors to do that because that would take the ser make the sermon too long and they've got places to be. You know, that's probably part of the issue. But uh, we'll go. All right. So what verse did we stop in? 12. I want to make sure we don't miss anything. All right, do we need to read 12 again? We didn't read 12? Okay. All right, so we'll read 12. And the Lord, uh, well, we'll go back to 11. And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. Now, that pastor in the sermon today, he did make one good application. Moses is trying to do the right thing, because he followed God's commandment to go and to do this, but he did it in a wrong way. I, can, I think there's a good application there. Amen? I mean, he, he could have just said, I'm not going to go. But he's going to go. He's going to give them water. He doesn't want to give them water. Right? Because I mean, he already implied that in the text. 
why do I have to do this? But, but, he does, he does try to get them the water. He just does it in a wrong way. Okay, there's some good application there. All right, verse 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the congregation into the land which I have given them. Stop right there. According to God, which I do find to be a more credible source than a pastor, <laughs> according to God, what is the reason that he, they are not go, he's not going to escort the people into the promised land? You believed me not. Now, how did he demonstrate that he did not believe God? If he believed God, he would have done what God said and what God told him to do, speak to the rock. He didn't even tell him to speak to the people. Didn't tell him to strike the rock. Right? So believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring the congregation into the land which I have given them. Verse 13. This is the water of Meribah because the children of Israel strove with the Lord and he was sanctified in them. And Moses sent messengers, and the text just goes on, right? Is there anything else said about why he can't go in? I don't, I'm not seeing it. Do you? Nothing in chapter 20. If it shows up somewhere else, I don't know where. The reason he can't go in seems to be pretty clear, does it not? Do we, do we have a cross-reference? We say, which verse does God tell them the reason they can't go in? Uh... Yeah, verse 12. Do we have a, uh, a cross-reference to something after this? I have Deuteronomy 127. Let's go to Deuteronomy 127. Uh, I, don't, I don't, this doesn't help me. And you murmured in your tents, and said, Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. That has no help. That doesn't help me in any way, shape, or form. Agreed? All right. So, does anybody else have any other cross-reference? Uh, any cross-reference? Does your study Bible offer one? Okay. Does anybody else? Uh, do you have a, a cross-reference? Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 25. All right. Um, let me make sure I can uh, find out exactly what's going on here. Moses chapter 3, or Moses chapter 3, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 25. I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain, and Lebanon. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. Get thee up to the top of Pisgah and lift up thine eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And behold, it is with thine eyes, for thou shalt not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua. So um, Moses is trying to go over, he's, he's pleading. God says no. Does he, does he bring up the re, the, a reason? No, he doesn't even bring up a reason, does he? No. Right? Do you have another cross-reference? That's all we have. Right. So it doesn't appear that any other reason is given. 
The, the clear implication of why he can't go in is for what reason? He struck the rock. Agreed? Can, does anybody see any other thing that we're missing? If you, if you think of something, let me know right now because we want to make sure we're 100% accurate here. I know it's hard doing this impromptu to make sure that we haven't missed something. Okay. Numbers 27.14. All right, let's jump over there. Okay, Numbers 27.12. Everybody there? Numbers 27.12. Uh, and the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee up into this Mount uh, Abarim, and seeth the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, uh, thou also shall be gathered unto the people as Aaron thy brother was gathered. For ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin and the strife of the congregation to sanctify me at the water before, before their eyes. That, that is the water of Meribah and Kedesh and the wilderness of Zin. There you go. I mean, nothing about striking the Egyptian. Agreed? Why is he, why cannot Moses go in? Because he struck the rock. And it's not even because he struck the rock. I mean, let's be honest. It's not, there was something. Now, some pastors will say that rock represents Christ and he struck the rock, which struck uh, the representation of Christ. You can try to make that argument. What's the issue? According to at least the Old Testament text, if you want to try to apply it that he was striking a picture of Christ, you can, but God does not condemn him for you struck a symbol. Right? You struck a symbol of my son. No, what God says is, you did not believe me. You did not sanctify me. You did not obey me. And he didn't obey because he was told specifically to do what? Leave me. Go speak to the rock. Before he even speaks to the rock, he speaks to the people. Whether that was wrong or right, it does indicate at least an anger. Right? And then he strikes the rock clearly frustrated it seems he strikes the rock they get the water immediately after that action does God tells him it has nothing to do with the has nothing to do with it nothing with the Egyptian so let me ask again is there a connection now let's be fair here let's be fair 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 all right now, I know there'll be people listening to this going, you're, you're being nitpicky and you're picking on this poor pastor on the radio. No, 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 no. This is not about being nitpicky. This is about being faithful to God's word. And if it's God's word, shouldn't we be quote unquote nitpicky? Right? Um, I'll never forget um, young Christian. We went to a conference in Dallas with the pastor. I'm a teenager. We're sitting there. We're listening to this man at this big conference in Dallas with thousands of people, and he tells this horrible, sad story. And everyone there is crying, right? It's an emotional thing. I think I was even crying. It was emotional. I leave the conference. I'm convicted, all right? So I feel that it's a good spiritual conference. I arrive back at First Baptist Church, Tuscola, Texas. It's Sunday morning. The pastor preaches. The pastor tells the exact same illustration, but he tells the story as if it happened to him. I get mad. I wait for said pastor. 
walk into said office and go, you lied from the pulpit. And you know what I was told? You're nitpicking. You're straining at a gnat. What's more important is, did people come to the altar? No, what's more important is you tell the truth. How about that? I don't know. My, my Bible says something about lying, I thought. I thought but that, that doesn't matter because, hey, as long as you get a good altar call, use whatever you want. That, that's frustrating. When a pastor says something about God's word, it is either true or it's false. If it's false, it's not. Be now, you could say, he's, he wasn't affecting any major doctrine. No, he wasn't affecting any major doctrine, but you know what he indicated to people? A horrible hermeneutic. Oh, same Hebrew word is used in Numbers 20 as it's used in Exodus 2. There has to be a connection. Why else would he tell them that it's the same Hebrew word? You, you tell me, why would he tell them that it's the same Hebrew word? Because he's trying to show that there is a connection, right? He's trying to demonstrate there's a connection. Now, could you step back? Now, you could preach it this way. The fact that there's the same Hebrew word is irrelevant because it's describing an action. He's striking something. The use of the same Hebrew word doesn't immediately attach the verses, right? What could possibly connect the verses is this. In this situation, Moses appeared to get very upset. He got upset. Now, of course, to be fair, he didn't immediately act. He waited. He looked. He ensured no one was looking. And then he killed the man. And then he hid the man. That, does, that seemed like a, a very calculated. It doesn't seem like just anger which just explodes. Agreed? Right? In the numbers story, he's, he's, he's mad. He's mad. Right? I mean, I think you can almost see it. As he's speaking, you can almost feel the anger building, and he's like, you want water? There's your water, you know? He's mad. That's, now, that's anger. Now, let's be fair, because he's seeming to imply, apply that the reason he didn't get to go into the promised land is because Moses had an anger problem. Now, let's be fair. How much time had elapsed from Exodus 2 to Numbers 20? Well, how long does he spend in the wilderness before he gets to lead the people out? 40 years. So 40 plus years has elapsed. 40 plus years. During those 40 plus years, do we see a man who seems to be out of control with his temper? He does seem like a man ready to take action if he believes something is wrong, because doesn't he get involved in saving the cattle? Right? He does seem like a man who's willing to fight and take a stand, right? Now, after he, uh, when he's dealing with Pharaoh, does he seem to lose control? Yeah, I thought, I, well, we'd have to look at some scriptures that describe Moses' character. But does it describe him as being humble? Does? Or mild, is do, do we know? I wish we knew where that verse was. Is it in Hebrews? 
Because, no, that would be interesting. Because now he may have been actually giving a wrong impression of Moses, right? We want to get, um, we want to get some facts here. Okay. All right. Oh, that is true. So that's not in Hebrews. All right. Okay, that has to be Exodus, I think. Has to be uh, Exodus. It's Miriam and Aaron, right? Oh, Numbers 12.3. Okay, well, maybe not Exodus. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, Numbers 12. And, okay, yeah, Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they, and they had said, hath, hath he, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now, they're coming after his wife. They're coming after his authority. Now, the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Meek. How, what does the NIV uh, use? Humble. Meek. That doesn't sound like someone who's got a, a, a rage temper problem, does it? It doesn't. He spends a lot of time with the people in the wilderness, does he not? Does he seem to maintain patience? Far more patience than I would have had. Correct? So, is it fair to come along and later say, hey, in fact, let, let's just state this. To be textually accurate, does God say, Moses, you can't go into the promised land because you have a temper problem? No. Does he say, you cannot go into the promised land because you have an anger problem? No. He doesn't say anything like that. It's because in front of the people... He did not demonstrate that God was what's most important. He allowed his emotion, right? Now, he does get upset, but it's not demonstrating that that's his normal way. In this particular instance, he said he did not obey God. Right. He should have been focused on what God... He, he became more preoccupied with the people than he was preoccupied with God, which can happen to anybody. Right? He did not say, uh, the text says he did not sanctify the Lord before the people because he uh, became preoccupied with the people and his emotions. That's the text. Now you have a pastor on national radio implying almost that Moses had an anger problem. I'm like, dude, you're, that's 40 plus years ago. Like, that, isn't that, that, that's, that to me is so simple, uh, symbolic of what Christians can do to people. Like before you're saved, everything you did before you're saved is almost a badge of honor, right? Before you saved, if you were a drug dealer, killed people, slept with prostitutes, a gang member, man, tell that story from the pulpit. <laughs> Everyone will clap for you, right? You're the greatest, man. Now, if you, if you didn't do bad stuff before you got saved, you're boring. They don't want your testimony. But if you got a bad one, they want it. I mean... Woo, tell me that story. And that's all good. But if you make a mistake after you're saved, 40, 50, 60 years later, you're still remembered for that. Here's a pastor trying to connect Moses' killing of the Egyptian with him striking the rock to try to say the reason he didn't get to go in is because 
He had a temper problem. That isn't accurate. That isn't biblical. That is horrible hermeneutics. Well, which verse? Oh, the one that, well, he's meek. What, what, what passage was that? 12.3. Yeah, 12.3. Numbers 12.3. All right. Does that, does, that, does that make sense? So what hermeneutical lessons can we take from this? All right. Let's try to uh, get some hermeneutical lessons here. All right. We've kind of already mentioned them, but we'll summarize them. Are we ready? Here's number one. The presence of the same Hebrew or Greek word does not mean that the passages are connected. The presence of the same Hebrew or Greek word does not mean they are connected. Would everyone here agree with that? I mean, if you don't agree with that, well, I don't know what to say. Like, you're wrong, okay? They're not connected, okay? So, so then that leads us to number two. What is required to draw correlation or draw connection? What is required? We know what it, we know what doesn't make connection or correlation. The presence of the same Hebrew word or Greek word doesn't immediately connect it. So what is required to make a connection? What would you look for to draw a connection or a correlation? Okay. If a, if a, we'll state it this way. All right. And you, you can do this ABC. We'll see how many we can get. Okay. So I think we'll say this, if, a, if another verse makes reference or quotes it, there's correlation, right? That's pretty, that doesn't require seminary to figure that one out, right? If I'm, if I'm, in other words, if I'm reading in Matthew and Matthew makes reference or a direct quote from Isaiah, ding, 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 I've got a winner, there's correlation, Right? If it just says, it is written, like we, we were looking at the temptation, right? It is written. Where did he quote from? Deuteronomy. So now, uh, why did he pick Deuteronomy? Well, we go back, we looked at the full context, and that greatly influenced how we interpreted Matthew. If we went back to Deuteronomy, there's correlation. Everybody agree? All right, second, what would be another thing that would, uh, so the first is when one verse quotes or references a previous, what would be a second thing that would lead you to believing a correlation or causation or something along those lines? Let me, I'll give you an example. If you're reading a psalm, say Psalm 51. Psalm 51 doesn't quote from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, it doesn't quote from anything over there, but we know through study, that it is describing something that is related to the historical account stated elsewhere. So if we have a horse, we'll call it a historical connection. In other words, if the psalmist is saying, Lord, forgive me for this horrible sin, and we're like, well, what horrible sin did David commit? Well, we can go to another Old Testament book. Even though, does that Old Testament book quote the psalm? No. Does the psalm quote from the Old Testament book? No, but we know there's a historical connection. Does that make sense? Right? Well, so, as some of the titles give us who wrote them. Some of the titles give us some uh, indication, like when David fled from Saul, it will give us some indication. But remember, those titles are not inspired. 
So we have to, but we, we, can, we can at least ask and go, okay, what's the historical setting? So in other words, if I'm reading a psalm, uh, psalms are the best example. We can find this elsewhere. And you're like, wait a minute. What is he talking about here? I, th I, I think this is the historical setting. Now, we have to make sure there's a historical setting. And if we can connect the historical setting with some sense of, sh of assurance and surety, then we can draw the correlation. So if one verse references the other, we have a connection. If one, makes, if one is connected to another by a historical connection... Repeating, or they may overlap, or, you know, for example, um, I, I, I just, I, I would have to look at different, uh, different books to see this, but they'll make a reference to something, and you're like, wait a minute. I I th yeah, I think that's describing that event, or I think, even though it doesn't quote from it, yeah, 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 I, it didn't quote from it, but you can try to draw, well, and the best thing I can use to describe it is a historical connection. That's why I'm using the psalm. Everybody understand that? Like, when I read Psalm 51, we believe that's connected to David's sin, right? Almost everyone believes that historical connection. The psalm doesn't quote it, but there's a historical connection. Does that make sense? All right, All right so that's two. Number three, what's another uh, possible way to establish a connection? Now listen, this is dangerous, but listen to what I'm about to say. A connection can be based on a common topic or a common theme. Not a common word. Now, the word may connect them, but it's because of the topic or, or, and what do I mean by that? If I read a verse in Matthew about baptism, right? Other verses about baptism may not reference those verses. Now, they are using the same word, right? But what we're focused on is not the fact that they're using the same Greek word or the same, or, the, or even the same word. What we're dealing with is they're dealing with the same topic. They're dealing with the same theme. So if I'm going to understand everything about baptism, I've got to find all the verses that speak of baptism. I'm not, I'm not really concerned in that particular case of the same Greek word. Does that make sense? The same Greek word may be helpful, but there I'm not trying to draw a, a direct correlation. In other words, if I... If, for example, if I read a, uh, a verse over here about baptism and a verse over here about baptism, I'm not going to make some argument because they're using the same Greek word. I'm going to try to make an argument that these verses describe baptism, so what combined do they teach me about the subject? Do you understand kind of a link through topic or theme? Does that make sense? All right. Now, are there times... Now listen. I think number four, we'll, we'll put number four. There are times... Listen where the presence of the same Hebrew or Greek word does possibly link them together in helping us understand something. Does that make sense? Right? Again, a good example. If we look up the Greek word for baptism, baptizo, however you pronounce it, there is a verse, I believe it's in Acts, I would have to verify this, where it speaks of washing the table. Right? And I think that use of washing the table uses the term baptizo, right? So those who believe in sprinkling will argue, there's baptizo, they didn't immerse the table. They didn't immerse the table. So that proves baptism is not by immersion. Now, right there is already questionable connecting, right? One is speaking of washing a table, 
The other one speaking of baptizing someone. Like, already you're going to be questioned. Now, it's the same Greek word. Now, I do want to look at those two, right? I do want to look at those two. But am I going to base my view on baptism based off the fact that they used a Greek word about making a table wet? I hope I would get my understanding of baptism from verses that speak of actually a human being being baptized. And when I go to the... Now, they use the same Greek word. Now, you see, you want to look at both of those. There is a, a connection because they do use the same Greek word. But even there, just because there's a connection, you can't go crazy. That's the day. That's the day. What happens is people get a concordance and they just start looking up connecting words and you're like... They're connected. And you're like, no, they're washing a table. If you want to use the washing of a table to prove sprinkling for baptism, I'm going to call into question your entire ability to understand a Bible. Because why wouldn't I go to the passage where people are being baptized? And what do I find when people are being baptized? They went down into the water. They went down into the water. They went... They, can I be baptized here? There's much water. Like, like if I'm in, the, I'm in the chariot, do I need to go all the way down to the water if all I need to do is be sprinkled three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? No, the implication seems to be if I'm going down into the water, I'm probably going under the water. That seems to be, at least, that's just the implication from the general reading, right? Now, if you want to start arguing, well, Here's the word, and they, they made a table wet. Well, all they have to do to meet the requirement for the word is make the table fully wet. Right? And that the, the meaning of the word? Right? To make fully wet. Well, if I'm sprinkling someone, I'm not making them fully wet. So even if you want to use the washing of the table as a link, then I've got to take someone and not just sprinkle, I've got to put enough water To make them fully wet. I think it would be easier just to place them under the water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, but you get the... Now you see there that th there the common words do form a, a connection because I'm trying to understand baptism, but even there I have to make sure that I look beyond just the common word, right? Does that make sense? And that's what people will do. They're like, look, look, it uses the same word. And I'm like, yeah, okay. That's talking about a table. That's like... People go crazy with this kind of stuff. And, and here's the reason they go crazy. Listen to me carefully. Well, well, okay, we'll do this. Okay, so number one, we got... Okay, well, let's go back to the first, the first major point. Is just because the same words are used does not necessarily mean a connection. Number two, how do we establish a connection? I gave you how many ways of establishing a connection. Number one, it's a, a directly quoted. Number two... Some historical connection. There's, this is describing something that historically I can find in the Bible ta talking about. In other words, there's some other setting I can find. Hopefully that makes sense to everyone. Number three? A common topic or a common theme. And there, the correlation simply is, oh, they, these are speaking about the same topic. Now, doesn't, I, gotta, I still have to be a, a very careful about how I interpret those. This pastor, in his mind, he saw... He saw a connection because of the use of the same, same word, but he tried to draw a correlation between the same topic, which is, to me, not even a fair way of even handling it. But you get the idea of a common topic or theme. And number four, there are times where there can be connection when the same word is used. But what do you have to do even when you discover the same word? You've got to be very careful how you handle that. And I get baptism is a good example. 
When I was a Lutheran, I heard that all the time. Well, there's a, there's a verse in Acts where it, they, it uses baptizo when they washed the table. Come on. You think they took it down to the water and immersed it? That's so foolish. Those Baptists are so dumb. Okay. Well, they made it fully wet, and that's the implication of the word, okay? But the point is, that has nothing. How, just because it uses the same word, it doesn't have anything to do with the baptism of the people. Just, it's, just because the same word is present doesn't mean I use it to teach a subject. Does that make sense? Like, that's crazy how people do that. I, I, I don't even know what's going on. All right, so, so we got our first, we got uh, when there's not a connection, right? Just because the same word there isn't a connection. Number two, we've got how to determine if there's a connection. And then number three, I thought this was going to be short, but I can go an hour even on an impromptu message. Here's number three. I want to get down from hermeneutical principles. Are you ready? And this one is sad. This one really makes me sad to say. Do not derive principles of interpretation or hermeneutics by listening to preachers in Christian churches. I hate to say that, but you can't. I will argue that if you know basic hermeneutical principles and hermeneutical ideas and basic Bible study methods, that you will find most preaching will literally drive you to the point of, I don't know, drinking. Heavily. And, and, I, and I know everyone thinks that I, that I use that in a hyperbo uh, you know, that I'm using hyperbole, but how many times have I walked into this building based off a sermon I just heard on the way here? I don't hop in the car and go, oh, I hope I find a bad sermon today. I don't hop on my iPad and go, today I'm going to find a bad sermon to listen to. I'll just listen to anyone, and how many times I'm just like, what is going on? It's not because I have more knowledge than that pastor. In many cases, those pastors will have maybe not more degrees than I have, but they will have degrees from a, a, a bigger or more well-named school than I have, right? They'll have, they'll have a more respected institution behind their name. Okay, but here's the problem. It doesn't matter what name you have on your degree. If you in seminary, you don't, you, you, because we, I see this all the time. People go to seminary, they learn things, and then when they get to church to preach or to be a pastor, they're almost immediately told, don't use anything you learned in seminary. Because now your job is to be entertainer, social activity planner, kiss babies, shake hands, get along with people. You don't want to make too many people mad because they control your life and they can fire you or not pay you. So if you want to just give the people what they want and guess what the people don't want? They don't want an exegetical study. They don't want to learn hermeneutics. They don't want to learn Bible study methods. They don't want to learn those principles. They want nice little sermons. And guess what? That, 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 the, the man who I listened to preach on the way here, he got a, a you know, I, don't, I don't know if it was a standing ovation, but everyone erupted in applause by the end of that sermon, even though they just heard him completely mishandle God's word. He completely drew a correlation where there was no correlation. I try to impress everyone because it says it's the same Hebrew word. Well, congratulations. You figured out it's the same Hebrew word. I mean, what other, what other Hebrew word would you use? They, he struck, he talked about striking something. So obviously it's going to be the same Hebrew word, right? Oh, woo, shocker, right? 
I bet you, I bet you the word water in one passage is the word water somewhere else. So the, the, the Red Sea closed in, right, and it used water. If that's the same Hebrew word as Jesus talking about water, then is all water a picture of judgment? I mean, like, it's the same word. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you can just do people go crazy with correlations like that. But he, he does that, and then he almost implies that, the re that there were two reasons Moses did not go into the promised land. In fact, he basically said this. There were two reasons he struck the Egyptian, and he struck the rock. Well, wait a minute. He, no, that's not true. He, did not, he, he was not kept out of the promised land because he struck the Egyptian. He was kept out of the promised land because he did not obey God dealing with the people in this particular case. The text says that. that and he, but yet the people were like, Woo! You're clapping. Because he made some powerful point about anger and about, you know what I'm saying? Like, ooh, you know. And, and, and then he, and the, the way he got the applause was he goes, he didn't get to go into the promised land. But thousands of years later, guess where Moses shows up? The Mount of Transfiguration. He got to the promised land because God finishes what he starts. Okay, whoa. Okay. I, okay, time out. Okay, where, where, did we, where did we go here? You, you already said he didn't get in there, but then he got to the ultimate promised land. Okay, like, okay there, there's, there's possibly some cool things to be said there, but it's like I'm still sitting there focused on, wait a minute, you just mishandled Exodus 2 and Numbers 20, and now you're jumping to another connection between going into the promised land and showing up on Mount, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Other people showed up on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration as well. I mean, is it, a, is it kind of, is it, is it, is it interesting that he was told he can't go into the promised land, yet he shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Is that interesting? Yes, it is interesting. Is there a direct correlation, or is there a reason the people who show up show up when they show up? Right? Is there another reason? Like, that, that raises some other questions. But I just want you to see that, that when you listen to preaching, you can't derive, and, and you do so by default. Like, you don't, it's not like you're sitting there going, oh, my pastor uses this hermeneutical principle. Oh, my pastor uses, because you don't even, in many cases, know. But you pick up just by, in your subconscious, you're like, oh, that's the way they interpret it. And you just begin to develop it by, by example, right? Does that make sense? You just kind of do it. So let, let me stay, uh, I'll end with this. Why do you think, in many cases, pastors demonstrate such poor hermeneutics from the pulpit. All right, I agree that people don't hold them accountable. They, they want to gripe about, when people want to gripe about the church, they never want to gripe about hermeneutics. I've never in my entire ministry had someone come complain to me about hermeneutics. It's always complaining that they didn't get, well, we need to do more fun things. Okay, well, then go do fun things. You don't need me. Okay, like, oh, that drives me crazy when we've had those kind of complaints. Good thing for the mo most of the history of the church, we haven't had those complaints. But I always wish that we get a hermeneutical complaint. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's argue hermeneutics, and then we guess where. But they don't. Here's the reason. Preaching, and I want to just end with this. Preaching is inherently dangerous. Yeah, and the multitude of words, there's, 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 there's much sin. And, and, and because preaching is a, and there's no way to get around this, it's a, it's a little bit of performance art. Right? When I'm teaching, right, and I'm trying my best to teach, and I'm trying my best to teach, you, you're reading the room. 
right? Like people, people may not think I'm paying any attention, which sometimes blows my mind that how people are sitting in a, in a church doesn't understand that the person preaching is seeing you. But like I'll be teaching and I'll be like, sometimes I just want to stop and go, oh, okay, so do you want to finish reading that? Or, you know, do you want, you, you want me to, you know, I'll just stop preaching because obviously you're reading ahead, I guess. I guess, you know, you're, you're going to read the Bible now. I guess, you know, can't read the Bible before church or after church, but you can read it now. Well, I'm trying to teach, right? Or they got the Bible study guide open reading it. And I'm like, I'm talking. Or they're like back there having their own Bible study. They're like, I'm like, you can do Bible study Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So, but, but you're going to do Bible study while I'm talking. And then afterwards come up and, and question something I said. I'm like, you didn't listen to anything I said. You're back there running your own cross-reference. How about listen to me? Like, and so, so you, when, when all this is going through your brain while you're, talk, while you're talking, you're like, okay, why are they not paying attention? Why are they, what are they doing? Okay, what are they, like, and you're watching people's actions, and you're like, okay. And so sometimes you'll may like, okay, all right, time to get their attention back, right? So I'm, I'm, we're getting ready to talk about Moses. Okay, instead of, instead of being bound by the text, I'm going to step away from the text and kind of tell the story, right? And I'll try to tell the story in a more entertaining way, a more engaging way. That sounds so good because you can get the people's attention. The only problem is, and it's not even intentional, right? You're just telling the story and you're giving the wrong impression that's not accurate to the text, right? You're just like, I'm going to get their attention. I'm going to get their attention. I'm going to get their attention. So I'll start saying Moses did this or Moses did that. And it may not be, you know, he had an anger problem. I can get some attention because most people sitting in a big church, you probably got plenty of people there with an anger problem, right? So just preaching is a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing. And it's dangerous for the one doing it because the last thing you want to do is misrepresent the truth. No preacher, I hope no preacher gets up there and wants to do that. But you get caught up in the performance. You're trying to get people's attention. You're trying to like, pay attention to me. You know, what are you doing? And you don't want to just stop your sermon every time. Like in, you know, in, you know, like in public school, your teacher would just go, uh, excuse me, uh, you know, would you like to pay attention? Would you like to share with the class what you're doing? Like there's times in sermons I, I've kind of walked up to people and go, well, since you're over there studying, I'll just stop and why don't you just come up to the pulpit and explain to me what you've learned? I mean, I thought I was trying to teach you, but hey, oh, since you're not paying any attention to me, why don't you just get out? Like sometimes you just want to lose your mind as a preacher because you have to just like, People, I always taught my kids, when, uh, before, uh, even before I became a pastor, that when someone speaks, you show respect by listening. Don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the high priest of the church of Satan. I don't care who, if it's a Nazi. You stand there and show respect to the one speaking. Listen, take notes. And if you have a, con a problem with what they say, then you speak to them after. But you show respect to someone who, who's speaking. Because speaking... Is, well, a lot of people are scared to death of public speaking, right? But then they show no respect to the one publicly speaking. <laughs> you know? So, but you see how that can be dangerous for preaching? Because, man, you, you want to make it engaging. You want to make it exciting. The only problem is you can leave the text way back. In fact, in this sermon, he says, he, he says I'm not going to read the text. Right? He says, I'm not going to read that. I think he even says, I should read the text, but I'm not. And then he goes into telling a story. Telling the story. I wonder why he did that. 
my own personal, I mean, I don't know, but from my, from my own personal experience, I know like, like sometimes within five minutes of preaching, I can look at the room and be like, okay, I don't know if anyone's even here. Now, sometimes I'll just say that to you guys, and I'll be like, okay, well, change the plan. I'm going to try to get, at least get the text out there mentioned, and then I may go full just talk and not read, right? Because no one's paying attention. Or if I think everyone's just reading ahead, like I, sometimes I just want to stop and go, well, when you catch up, you know, when, uh, you know I'll wait for you to get done. Because <laughs> I guess you've tuned me out now. Like sometimes you just, you don't even know what to do. And that's dangerous. That's why uh, in, in church history, there's been those pastors who just write a manuscript and they just put the paper in front of their face and just read the manuscript. Now that, that will protect you. Maybe the most boring sermon in the history. I think there's a way, there's got to be a way where you cannot be boring. You can be passionate. You can have zeal. But you can't allow the people's reactions to, well, do what Moses did. <laughs> right? You can't allow the people... You can't, you can't allow the people to change what, you're, what you are commanded to do, which is to proclaim God's word. But I, 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 as I've preached longer, I'm now more forgiving of pastors in that sense because I know what it's like. I know what it's like. And you're like, sometimes you're like, man, what do I do today? Well, what do I, come on. Well, I got to figure something out. And, and so I understand, like, sometimes I'm listening to a pastor. I can almost, like, I almost can read their mind. Like, I know what they're thinking right now. I don't even have video. And right now, there's someone out there who's ticking them off, okay? You can just tell. There's someone out there who's not paying a bit of attention, and now they're trying to get their attention. You can almost tell. That, but as a, re, as a result, you, the listener to preaching, you have to be aware of that. That doesn't excuse it. Please understand, I am not excusing the mistake. The pastor's job is to be faithful and to hopefully demonstrate proper hermeneutics and preaching. But preaching is a weird creature. And when you're listening, you've got to realize, wait a minute, that's not hermeneutics. He just went, he just went impromptu. He's telling me a story. And he may use some humor. He may try to make it sound great. And that's wonderful. And it's hard to know how to do it. So I just want you to realize, don't get your, don't get your hermeneutics from preaching. Okay? Don't. I, I, when you're a young preacher, that's how you get your hermeneutics. I mean, you do. I mean, you're, I'm sitting there. I mean, I had thousands. I mean, I've got thousands and thousands and thousands of notebooks with, with uh, notes. Not because I, I was thinking I was ever going to be a, a preacher at the beginning. It's because I wanted to learn how to handle God's word. So for me, I listen to preachers and like, oh, that's how you handle God's word. And I've always said how I handled it. MacArthur taught me verse-by-verse -verse exposition. Swindoll taught me application. And Chuck Smith taught me how to sleep. Okay? That used to be my joke, because Chuck Smith, put, I'm like, that, was the, that man died, and someone forgot to tell everyone that he had died in the pulpit. I'm like, could you get excited, man? All right, Swindoll, great application, great application. Man, he made those scriptures like, whoa. Now, sometimes I don't know if that application was accurate, but it was good. MacArthur... Sometimes he forgot the application part, but man, he was taking the verse apart and expounding it. So I tried to put all of that together. Uh, I tried to throw out the Chuck Smith part, okay. But I tried to put the other two together. Like, can I be exegetical, but still apply it? Okay, uh, exegetical and, and application. Can I exegete it so that you understand it, but then drive the point home, right? But I learned that from preaching. The problem is some of that I had to clean up. 
And so sometimes you'll, you'll pick up skills and you got it from preaching that you didn't even know. Okay, I have to stop. We're way over time. But all right. Any questions about what, how, how, that, how that occurred? And you, you've got to be able to pick that stuff out on your own. Like it would be interesting if you were listening to that same sermon, if you would have caught it. If you wouldn't have, you've got to get, you've got to get better at doing that. You don't because you don't need I, I you don't need me to be there. Because anyone should have caught what was going on in that sermon, and it was like, whoa, what just happened? Right. Yeah, well, for me, even if he didn't read the text, the, the, the thing that, that, that should have triggered them was, it uses the same Hebrew word. That should have triggered them, not, not does it use the same Hebrew word. They should have said, what difference does it make? Just because the two passages use the same Hebrew word doesn't draw a connection. Yeah, that same Hebrew word is used hundreds. Like, just, like, do we connect every verse where it says, Someone struck or, you know, smote or smited something? Like, no, the word's used over and over and over. He immediately drew these together, and everyone should have go, wait a minute. This is 40-something years separated? Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, time out, time out, time out. Now, he didn't give them the ability to call time out. Now, if you're listening to a sermon, what you do is you don't start go looking it up. You just throw in your notes. Exodus 2, Numbers 20. Look this up. You go home, that's when you look it up, and then you come back to church that night going, hey, pastor, you got a few minutes? Yeah, what's up? You're out of your mind. Yeah. These don't connect. Like, oh, you're right. Hopefully a pastor would say, you're right, and then stand up behind the pulpit and go, I was wrong. These don't connect. Right? That, that's how it should work. It's, uh, it doesn't always work that way because I've, I've, I've sent many a pastor uh, messages about things they've done and I've never got an apology from the pulpit. Okay, I got, I got one. I got one apology from the pulpit at a church in Nebraska where the guest speaker talked about that if you see basically a homosexual on the street, you should bash their heads in. Uh, and so I, me, uh, I got my family and we stood up and walked out. And I'm like, I'm not going to... And so I had a, I mean, a throw down with my pastor. We, I mean, I went to war. Like, we do not treat homosexuals that way. And then he got up and he offered an apology for what the man said, uh, but it was like, almost like, there are some people here who were offended because of the strong, like, and then everybody in the congregation was like, like looking around like, who was offended? Like, I don't, who would have a problem with that? I'm like, I don't know, bashing the heads in of another human being because of their sexual orientation. Yeah, I just have a problem with that, people. I wanted to say, I'm go, yeah, it was me, okay? It was, I think they all knew it was me. But, you know, he's the liberal. He's the, you know, socialistic, communist, you know, leftist, crazy person. Uh, no, I just kind of think that we're called to love our enemies, so... I think I could possibly pass some love on to someone who has a sexual orientation that I believe is a sin because well, even heterosexuals commit in sinful practices that are sexual. So I don't know. Shocker. Okay. But uh, yeah. Um, but uh, that, so I, that's the one time I got a, an apology, but it was almost a mocking apology. The other times where I'm like, yeah, that text was handled wrong, I'm almost always told, you're being too picky. Being too picky. I'm, I don't know. It's God's word. Maybe, maybe we should be more careful with it. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we have the ability on a Wednesday just to dig into a hermeneutical issue like this. Um, I'm, I'm glad we don't have people who get upset by challenging a sermon or critiquing a sermon. 
It's not even about trying to make that pastor embarrassed. That's why I did not mention the name or anything along those lines. This really is about challenging everyone in this room and who hears this. That, hey, it's your word. We have to learn how to study it and handle it correctly. Whether we're doing it at the kitchen table in our home, in our study at our home, or if it's happening behind the pulpit. We need to be able to determine when it's being handled wrongly, and we need to know how to handle it correctly. I pray this discussion will benefit someone somewhere, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,